let the word go forth from this time and place to friend and foe alike that the torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans born in this century, tempered by war, disciplined by a hard and bitter peace, proud of our ancient heritage, and unwilling to witness or permit the small undoing of those human rights to which this nation has always been committed and to which we are committed today at home and around the world. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. podcast i'm your host john Hendricks. this is episode 44 um as most of you know the 15th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks has just passed um and usually it's a time of reflecting and people are posting on social media asking you know do you remember where you were at that day do you remember what you were doing and you know i certainly remember but I saw a post on Facebook and it was discussing, you know, the the role of the U.S. in trying to, attempting to counter these groups and this ideology that has taken root and has really not been easy to defeat uh, globally. And then, so it made me kind of reflect and start to, to think about this and, you know, there, there are units within the United States military who specialize in this type of warfare and it, there are, early on in the Afghanistan war, there were elements of these units who saw various levels of success in countering insurgency and it wasn't through you know unbelievable amounts of firepower or airstrikes and or you know that kind of thing what kind of what people would think uh is is what you know wins a war but it was building relationships with the local population it was helping the local population it was letting them know that you know, the things that the Taliban or these groups are saying about Americans are not true. And, and, you know, we're proof of that. And it was highly successful because it allowed these Army Special Forces teams to deny the Taliban or or the groups that they were fighting against 
safe haven. Uh, and in any insurgency, what the insurgent needs to survive is the support of the people. And since its inception, the Army Special Forces Green Berets have been masters of this kind of warfare. So back on the show is retired Special Forces Major Rusty Bradley. And uh, Major Bradley has had a long career in the Army Special Forces, uh, you know, working these type of unconventional warfare missions uh, with multiple combat deployments into Afghanistan. And uh, Major Bradley is also the author of a book called The Lions of Kandahar. And it is actually one of my favorite books about the Afghanistan war. It was about a specific operation, but um, it's a very good book. And I would highly recommend anyone who's interested in reading about, you know, what what these type of operations were like and, and what uh, Green Berets were doing in Afghanistan to pick it up. Um, it's available anywhere books are sold. Uh, I'll also have a link for it in the podcast notes. Uh, when the episode goes live, you can check it out on my website at www.globalrecon.net slash podcast. So with that being said, now I will play for you guys the conversation that I had with Major Rusty Bradley. Hey, what's going on, guys? Uh, I'm on with Major Rusty Bradley. Um, for those of you who have been listening to the show, uh, the Major has been on a few previous episodes and we discussed uh, various different topics. But, you know, this being the 15th anniversary of the September 11th attacks, um, a lot, you know, a lot of people are posting on social media, kind of reflecting on the past 15 years and, and um, you know, how life has changed uh, for Americans and really for the world. And then it just got, got me thinking about, you know, what, what, how has this global war on terror been, uh, like what direction has it been heading? And, you know, is it, is the world any safer than it was 15 years ago? And are these, you know, radicalized groups, um, being squeezed and, and are they being defeated? But it seems like there seems to be more, more and more groups and they're, they're taking more and more territory and, um, so it, it it isn't looking too good, and you know as as you as you usually can do, you can look at history and see where mistakes were made in certain kinds of warfare, and see what you know what actions need to be taken to put us on the right course. Now, Major Bradley is a retired Special Forces Major. I'm sure most of you know that. Um, and the Green Berets have a very unique skill set in that not only do they specialize in direct action and, and all of that, but they specialize in counterinsurgency and um, really the, the mental uh, warfare. So, um, Major, I, I know you you have a lot to say on these on this topic, and um, you know I'm, I'm glad that you've taken out the time to come on. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. So, what what in your opinion? So, I I read I just finished reading a book uh, called Hammerhead Six uh, about an ODA who went into Afghanistan early in the war and set up 
what is known as a special forces a camp um and for for the audience who might not know what that is could you just give a, a little background on what a special forces a camp is yeah uh, the term a camp comes from um the u.s special forces teams in vietnam and what an a camp essentially is is a self-supported, self-supplied base with which the U.S. Special Forces have the ability to conduct operations by, with, and through the indigenous people. And doctrinally, they're supposed to have all of their own assigned capabilities. So indirect fire, uh, helicopter support lift assets, um, indigenous units, um, these are the types of things that, um, if you imagine, um, what is now understood by a lot of people as a forward operating base by conventional forces, if you take that platform or that definition you place it in an extremely remote location that is exactly what a special forces a camp is um you know it's a place of it's essentially a it's a temporary accommodation but it's also a place for the indigenous forces to be able to operate out of safely, which means it can defend itself and can also conduct uh, combat operations where the host nation or the um, force that's operating out of there can um, defend themselves and conduct combat operations. So, Dozens and dozens of these small special forces A camps um, were set up all over Afghanistan shortly after the war started in order to allow us to be able to coordinate and link up with indigenous forces and tribes in order to project U.S. combat power into uh, insurgent hill territory. So one of the reasons why, you know, these A camps are successful is because it really removes the ability for the insurgents to live amongst the people and, and operate and and that's really what they need to survive in, uh, in, in whatever country where there's kind of this insurgent movements and basically like the gist of what the book was, uh, Hammerhead Six was just talking about how they didn't just go in and, you know, say, you know, where's the enemy? Let's, let's drop bombs. Let's shoot people. I mean, obviously there's a time and place for, for that. And, but what they did that was unique was they, you know, trained local forces, uh, built rapport with local leaders, um, and and not only did they do that, but they 
showed respect for the the customs of Afghanistan, which is very different from what we're used to over here in America or or anywhere in the West, really. And that seemed to really work. And these insurgents at night would, you know, drop leaflets in front of people's doors or slip notes under the doors, you know, saying like the the Americans are here to enslave you and and they're here to, to disrespect Islam and stuff like that. And it got the report was so good that they had built built up over time that people would just bring these leaflets to the, to their base, uh, laughing about how you know foolish it was. But it seems like even though these teams experienced so much success in countering the ideology, it wasn't followed through. Or I'm not sure what the right term is, but it wasn't. Like, that should have been what was spearheading the efforts, and it, it kind of wasn't. And I'm sure you have a, a better understanding of, of how that went down than I do. Well, you know, it's interesting that you listen to the national media, and there's so few people that actually understand the difference between special operations forces and U.S. special forces. The Green Berets are the only U.S. special forces by doctrine. There's no other force, not the Rangers, not the SEALs, not anyone that is U.S. special forces, that are U.S. special forces. What most people don't understand is everybody thinks that they're door kickers. It's what they relate to off of a TV screen. There are a lot of units that are phenomenal at doing direct action and a little bit of foreign internal defense, but they only have a very limited mission set and mission statement. The U.S. Special Forces, the Army's Green Berets, are the only force on the entire globe that can either build a country or destroy one. We typically have seven missions that we have to be able to accomplish. Everything from foreign internal defense to unconventional warfare, intelligence collection, psychological operations, uh, civil affairs. We have to do counterintelligence, direct action. Um, we have to do special reconnaissance. There's a tremendous amount of things that each Green Beret has to be able to do, and every ODA, or Operational Detachment Alpha, the 12-man team that most people are familiar with, have to be able to accomplish when they go into a foreign country. So what is inherently unique about U.S. Special Forces, other than the fact that they are a global enabler for the President of the United States is the fact that they are also a force multiplier. So depending upon whether you're trying to fight an active insurgency in a country or you are trying to create an insurgency to overthrow a regime, you are either building a new military or you are building an insurgent force that upon successful completion of your mission, you will be building the uh, the new military or you are augmenting the military that is already established to defeat an active insurgency in that country. 
Special Forces A camps are unique in that they are a frontline defense for U.S. military interests around the world. The ability for a 12-man Special Forces ODA to be able to operate in a rural and ancient part of the world through the host nation's culture, their language, and their religion allows us to be able to connect with those people in ways that no other force and no other soldiers can do in the world. That in and of itself allows us to get on the ground, connect with the right people at the right time in order to affect the battlefield or the battle space and have a real strategic effect that nobody else, no other force can have in the world. And that's what Ron Fry's do, uh, dudes, <laughs> that's what his Special Forces ODA were doing in the Pesh Valley. Yeah, and after they left, the, the Pesh Valley really became one of the most dangerous parts of Afghanistan. Um, you know, being close location-wise to where, you know, the Lone Survivor incident happened uh, with Marcus Luttrell and SEAL Team 10 and and really several kind of bad engagements for the U.S. or like bad ambushes and things like that. Um, now, what, what, what seemed to have happened was when they left out of the, when they rotated out of Afghanistan, um, if I'm not mistaken, I believe conventional infantry forces moved in and conducted like search and destroy operations where they would go out and aggressively search for the Taliban. And, you know, in, in doing so, you know, there's uh, innocent people get killed uh, through, through these big fights and things like that. And, you know, before, before you know it, the entire valley then turns on the Americans and that, and that's when, uh, American soldiers start dying. And it's kind of, it's almost strange for me to see how one way really worked. And it was really a small footprint, which is the, the special forces method. And then the larger footprint seems to fail. And, and then that leads to a lot more chaos, a lot more anarchy and a lot more casualties for United States, uh, military personnel. So what can you explain or, or, or maybe give your opinion on why you think that is? And then what at the policy level, either in the military or above the military, uh, with our elected officials kind of allow these bad decisions to happen? Well, I mean, there, there's two fairly simple answers to that. Number one is uh, troops to task for how that happened. And number two, uh, what allowed it to happen, which was uh, not changing the U.S. policy towards uh, light intensity and medium intensity conflict across the globe. Having been an enlisted soldier in the regular army, I understand what the infantry and the combat arms requirement and mindset is 
people don't seem to understand that they call them special forces for a very particular reason. It is because they are recruited, selected, trained, equipped, and operationalized based upon based upon a very strict set of standards and guidelines that create an operational unit with capabilities that are in the one-tenth of one percentile in the entire U.S. population. So when I say that, what I'm trying to explain is that when you put a U.S. Special Forces team in, and you operationalize them and they create capabilities within an area that can't be matched unless it's done by another special forces unit. People don't understand when you step back and look at the big picture, unless you've been on the inside looking out and not just on the outside looking in, when you talk about strategic capability there is no other unit in the military that is trained, equipped, operationalized, authorized, and funded to be able to do what a U.S. Special Forces teams can do. They are essentially Delta, CIA, the Rangers, the intelligence community, psychological operations, civil affairs operations, everything rolled into 12 men. You can't take and put something that special into an area and create the relationships and the capabilities and then turn around and think that you can pull them out and then backfill them with guys whose doctrinal mission is to close with and destroy the enemy. When you have special forces guys that are going in to connect and build lifelong relationships with people through tribal affiliation or religious affiliation and and think that you can have the same effect. You've got essentially one group of guys that is trained to work to get the 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 host nation or the people who live there, the, the key terrain, you're trying to get them to fight for their own freedom versus you have a the regular army whose job it is to unilaterally close with and destroy the enemy. Once they find the enemy, they, they fix them and they destroy them. We not only do that in the Special Forces with the ODA, but we also use the host nation so that when we build security governance and development in an area, we then transition that over to the control of the local nationals and the host nation that we're working with. That's not the task or the responsibility of any other organization, and nobody else can do that transition but us. And it makes it very difficult, and I don't think it's fair for our infantry brothers to be able to be expected 
to come in and do the same things that we can do because their commanders expected them to be able to achieve the same results and they're not given the same capabilities that we're given. So the second half of that question is around 2007 to 2000, probably 10, you saw a lot of commanders, regular army commanders, who took the Special Forces concept of the A-Team and started sticking platoons and companies in extremely remote areas in Afghanistan, and they didn't have the ability to survive off the land. They didn't have the ability to connect with the local nationals and the host nation people that lived there. They didn't have the resources that we had. They didn't have the quick reaction forces. And they essentially stuck them out there to make the best of what they could in the middle of nowhere. And that was not fair to them and the U.S. mission to be able to think that, for lack of a better term, you got thoroughbreds and you got plow horses. I've been both. And each one is designed to do something else completely differently. Those guys who went in, the regular army guys who went into these remote areas did heroic things with the best resources that they had available. But in a lot of cases, they didn't have the support structure that we had. So they were going in to try to accomplish a mission that was almost impossible. And then when you look at the locations that were selected for them, they were the most strategically disadvantageous locations that you could select that no commander would ever, you know, if you put a, uh, you put a, infantry forward operating base at a terrain feature that's the convergence of three different valleys, that just means that you've got three different areas that you can be completely surrounded by high ground, and those army commanders picked them out for their strategic importance, but they did not backfill them with the capabilities that they needed to be successful to accomplish their mission. So what you had were inherent policy failures and tactical and strategic military failures by commanders who chose those locations, stuck guys out there in the middle of nowhere to be bullet sponges and expected them to be able to do things that they weren't trained or supported to be able to do. And they still managed to be incredibly successful, but it just can't, I mean, you, you can't stick a 30-man platoon with a few enablers in the middle of someplace in eastern Afghanistan, close to the Pakistani border, and think that people are not going to engage them on a regular basis 
and they're in a fishbowl. They can't do anything about it. They just have to wait for the next attack. And many of those forward operating bases did the same thing that we did in Kandahar province. They never went for more than 24 hours without being rocketed or attacked. And there was no way for them to strike back. So there were more than the fair share of policy failures at the senior military levels that were not addressed until really bad incidents happened where you have um, where you have U.S. forward operating bases that were being overrun and significant casualties were taken before they realized that you can't take that special forces concept of an A camp, turn it into a operating base and stick guys out there without the ability to support themselves and be strategically successful. A lot of this comes from nothing more than a control mechanism by senior members of the Pentagon and the U.S. Army because all special operations doctrinally fall under the control of regular army commanders. We're an enabler for them. The problem is, is that when you look at how wars are fought, that works great if you're talking about World War II or Vietnam. But I would even argue that in many cases, especially today where a lot of it is low in intensity conflict and medium intensity conflict, those conflicts are not being led by people who are experts and have trained their whole lives to fight those types of fights. So the policy change that needs to be made by the administration, the Secretary of Defense, and the Pentagon is to allow special forces commanders to be able to control conflicts that are determined to be light intensity and medium intensity conflicts. And what I'm telling you is that in cases where, say, for example, even, even in southern Afghanistan, you had a battle space owner that controlled for example, an entire province like Kandahar province or sections of Kandahar province. Well, you've got a battle space owner that's a regular commander that doesn't know how to fight a strategic asset like U.S. Special Forces teams. They know how to fight regular army units that they're in command of. Now, they may argue differently, but I don't give a damn what they say go back and look at any of their training and it is not in anybody's records unless you are a U.S. Special Forces commander because we are trained to not only be able to command and control special operations and special forces units, but also regular army units. We're the only unit, we're the only entity in the U.S. military that does that. 
Whereas vice versa, when you have battle space owners or huge swaths of space that are controlled by commanders who don't know how to operationally or strategically apply or even tactically apply all the enablers that are assigned to them, we end up having to either be mitigated to a very small space because we're being fought like platoons as special forces and not controlling entire provinces simply because doctrinally you've got a lieutenant colonel or a full bird colonel who doesn't want to have to answer to a special forces captain. Right. And I'm glad that you brought up, because this is something that I was always curious about um, when you were talking about how these forward operating bases will be placed in a in a location that's strategically uh, disadvantaged for them. Um, and and I believe I think there was a few documentaries out. I'm not sure if you're you're familiar with them, like uh, Restrepo. Oh, the Hornet's Nest. Yeah, I mean that. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like these bases are just like in the in the middle of you know three different mountains and these these regular army guys or, or marines whoever it was that was out there were literally just doing enough so that they cannot get overrun on on a daily basis or a weekly basis and i always wondered why that was allowed to happen and i know through some of those type of situations um you know marines were awarded the uh, Congressional Medal of Honor, and so were uh, Army Infantry guys uh, for their for their actions in you know stopping their their forward operating bases from being overrun by the Taliban or uh, whatever group it is they're out there fighting, and it just never made any sense to me, and I always wondered why that was allowed to happen, and and then. Well, when know. you figure that out, let me know because <laughs> I, of all the. Of all the units that I've talked to, I've talked to dozens and dozens of units, um, guys that even backfilled us at Spear Wangar. I have yet to talk to a U.S. infantry unit that occupied a forward operating base that ever had a say-so in choosing their location. It was always done by somebody echelons above them, and they were given the typical marching orders of, you know, Occupy this location, conduct these type of operations, and execute. That is not that that worked. That worked in World War II, and that shows how dated our doctrine can be. But it's not successful on the modern battlefield because the enemy doesn't think symmetrically they think asymmetrically and if you can't fight and win asymmetrically by with and through the indigenous people you're sticking guys out there and putting them at an unfair advantage no matter how heroic they are and we even experienced this where sometimes locations were selected for us that you know we didn't get a we didn't get a a voice in so i understand i've been on both sides of that coin repetitively but 
you can't we can't put people out there and expect them to achieve a result without giving them all the tools and capabilities that they needed to be able to be successful. Yeah, and it's it's just kind of strange to me, like, because I know, you know, going through for officers and, and generals, like when you're, you know, going through your schooling and stuff like that, I know that they, like, there are requirements, certain requirements for, like, reading requirements for certain books about strategy and things like that. And, you know, the, the methods of defeating an insurgency or countering an insurgency have been talked about for years. Um, you know, if, if anyone's familiar with The Art of War, uh, Sun Tzu talks about it there. I'm sure there's several other books where they, they speak about these kind of things. And it's it's almost like there's there's no appreciation for history when it comes to these matters, you know, and I, I just find it very weird. Well, it's, it's shameful that history doesn't repeat itself. Humans repeat history. And a lot of what you will find, I think, unfortunately, is the fact that when you get organizations and units that are forced into doing things that they're not trained, operationalized, funded, and equipped to do, you're putting them at such a disadvantage that it's it's not fair to them to try to mask it with a bunch of, you know, high-ranking awards and expect their heroism to... to win the day every single time. When you think about, you know, I would not let my mechanic do open heart surgery on me or any member of my family, and I would not let my heart surgeon rebuild the motor in my car. So why do we think that we can expect, both are experts, in their field and they might overlap in a few areas, but it's not the same. And it takes a tremendous amount of courage to be able to admit that you don't know what you don't know. And that's another issue that we have is that it takes a serious amount of humility. I was very blessed to be able to work with, uh, General Abrams on my last rotation in 2012. Uh, he's now the Force Comm Commander, and he's one of dozens of generals that I worked with or advised throughout my military career. But he was one of the few guys that I ever met, especially as a conventional commander, that was not afraid to call me in the office in civilian clothes with a beard and say, I don't care how you're dressed, I don't care how you look, I need to pick your brain. Tell me what you know about this province. Tell me what you know about this district. What tribes make it up? What are the historical aspects? What are the blood feuds that they've had within the past 50 years or 100 years? What is driving the insurgency in this area? And 
it takes a lot of humility to be able to bring somebody in. It also takes a tremendous amount of leadership and courage and brilliance to be able to do that. And that needs to be cross-pollinated amongst all of our senior leaders and senior non-commissioned officers because I went in it into as many headquarters that people despised me for the way that I look but didn't see the soldier that was behind the beard, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it's 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 kind of funny, like, you know, you... Because, you know, you're not in the spit shine boots and, you know, you're, everything is completely shiny. You won't get that res- that respect where they would listen to you long enough, even though you are the expert in that, that matter or whatever it is that uh, needs to be discussed. And, you know, and like you said, I guess that certain types of um, uh ways of doing things work in a conventional type of fight. But in this, this type of warfare, it's completely non-conventional. And, you know, in, in that situation, you have to let the, the experts in that war and that type of warfare lead the way. And, you know, there, there's a lot of documentaries. Well, everybody, no, John, everybody has their capabilities. You have to know, what you're, you know, just like you said, it goes back to the art of war by Sun Tzu. That's one of the things that is absolutely rammed down our throat because the fundamentals that are taught by Sun Tzu stretch throughout history and generations and centuries. You know, if you don't know yourself and you don't know your enemy, you won't win any battles. If you know yourself, but you don't know your enemy, or you know your enemy, but you don't know yourself, you'll only win half your battles. But if you know yourself and you know your enemy, you'll win all your battles. I cannot think of the number of times I was willing to go to a conventional unit because those dudes had the hammer. They were not afraid to get out there and get on the ground, find, fix, and destroy the enemy. And we don't have that capability as a 12-man force. The commanders, the captains, and even some of the lieutenant colonels that we worked with understood what our unique capabilities were, but you've got to be able to balance that when you when you look at what your strengths and weaknesses are as a military commander and you figure what your troops to task are. If your task is too much for the troops that you have available, you have to seek an alternate means to be able to provide you enablers to accomplish your mission. If you can't do that or you won't do that or you sit back and say, oh, well, we got a coin PowerPoint or we did this in Iraq, so we're going to be successful at doing this in Afghanistan. It doesn't work that way. Every situation is not even 
flexible. You have to be fluid. You have to be every single battle, every single circumstance, every environment. You have to be willing to go back to the basic fundamentals understand what your strengths and weaknesses are, and then be willing to go out and ask for help or assistance. Um, you know, I, I will never not thank a U.S. Air Force or a Canadian soldier because, you know, if it had not been for the U.S. Air Force, I can think of four times that we would have been overrun, period, end of the story. Um, if we had not had the support of our Canadian uh, recce company on Spearwangar after the Battle of Medusa, there are numerous times when we were trying to expand our white space and we would have been overrun if the Canadians had not been willing to break their rules of engagement to come out to support us. So all soft requires non-soft support. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So, so aside from like, you know, the actual on the ground, like the situation on the ground that's preventing or hindering, you know, a successful counterinsurgency, what, like, can we talk a little more about policy levels by politicians? Um, I know, yeah, um, you know, globally, like not just in Afghanistan, but globally, like Africa and all across the Middle East, you know, there are more and more groups who abide by this radical ideology. And, you know, maybe they're not exactly linked together, but they, they, they do, they're in the same business. And you would think that, with the capabilities of the U.S. military, of the U.S. Uh, Special Operations Command and our intelligence apparatus, that we'd be able to to defeat these groups um, fairly quickly. But, you know, it, it seems to be like I've heard the expression used, like it's like a, a game of whack-a-mole. Like, you you know, you get one guy and another two pop up somewhere else and, and, and that kind of thing. Now... To be frank, there there's been a failure at the policy level that's allowed the U.S. to to lose ground in that way, and I'm sure to you that is is clearer than it is to most people. Well, you know that goes back to my statement earlier that every location, every culture, every mission is different. Even if the missions are the same, the people that you're working with are going to be different. The terrain's going to be different. You know, if you travel in 10 or 20 miles in any direction, anywhere in the world, something's going to be different. And you have to be able to adapt to that difference and figure out how to add it into the equation in order to determine what your uh, chances are of being successful for your mission. Um, I think all too often people, politicians have the tendency to be able to 
think that they can strap a Band-Aid on something and that, you know, some antibiotics are good for killing a lot of things, but they're not good for killing everything. That's the best analogy I can come up with, with my North Carolina public education. <laughs> so, uh, John F. Kennedy, President Kennedy had a, uh, a, a quote, a line, and it, I believe it was something like, um, you can kill a man or nations may rise and fall, but an idea lives on. And to me, it was, it's like, almost eerie how accurate that statement is. And it was almost like he was, he was able to see into the future or, or he, he knew enough at that time to see how the battlefields of the future were going to play out. And, and, and I think that was part of, you know, when he commissioned the green berets and Navy seals, uh, that was part of kind of his whole, um, ideology and, what it takes to defeat this type of new type of warfare, um, you know, where, where the lines aren't so clear, you know, and I know specifically in Afghanistan, there was a change in the rules of engagement. And, and I, I know a lot of guys had an issue with it and it, it really hindered the, the fighting ability of uh, American soldiers. Well, I, you know, the, the analogy that we use uh, pretty regularly is if you give a man a fish, he can eat for a day. But if you teach a man to fish, he can eat for a lifetime. That goes to the underlying ideology that you can go in and cut the head off a snake a dozen times. But if you don't defeat the ideology the snake's just going to keep coming back or a different snake's going to come back. What we try to do is to, to defeat the ideology that fuels the insurgency. And too many times we are dedicated to a fight where we identify what the enemy ideology is but there is not the political wherewithal to be able to defeat that ideology because of the requirement that will be placed on time and resources. You know, people don't want to people don't want to listen to facts and common sense. Politicians, the American people, want to listen to facts and common sense but if you think about we're still in japan and germany almost 80 years later and they were educated structural societies that were advanced we're now fighting in societies in iraq and syria and afghanistan and africa that are centuries behind what we can understand. It goes back to the example of so many people have correlated special operations to something like a football game. They want to 
sit down for two hours. They want to be an armchair quarterback. They want their team to win, and they want it to be over and move on to something else. That's not the way that you change the world. That's not the way that you make the world safer. It's not about trying to make a whole bunch of little Americas all over the world. It's about trying to create stable structures of some sort of representation for the people who live there in whatever place that they are in the world where they can essentially have a life without someone trying to destroy them. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, I think it's been apparent to anyone who kind of pays attention to foreign policy and, and the wars that we're engaged in that you can't just create an American-style, Western-style democracy, you know, anywhere in the world. And what's interesting about Afghanistan is it seems that, like, a central government has never really worked. And, you know, they the way they do things in Afghanistan is through more of a tribal system. Um, and I think... You know, when you when you're going in there and trying to create a central government, and you're not doing it in the in the way that they're accustomed to, which is through that tribal system, you know, they're just going to resist. And and there's so many examples of Afghanistan, the people of Afghanistan, the tribes resisting um, any type of foreign intervention or influence. And you know, we're going back thousands of years, so. You know, it, one would hope that with the coming election that uh, the right advisors would be in place to advise the, our elected officials on how to properly, you know, navigate through the different cultures of the the countries that we're fighting in, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, it comes down to if you don't have top cover, you are not going to be able to accomplish the things that you need to accomplish. And sometimes those things are, you know, with the, the saying that I put on all my emails, um, I don't know who said it, but I'd like to meet them and shake their hand is the quote is anything worth fighting for is worth fighting dirty for people and politicians specifically have to understand that once you drop that first drop of American blood, you are absolutely committed. There is no turning back. You have to be able to find success and you have to be able to recognize success for what it is. When we look at what we were able to accomplish in Afghanistan, some people want to write it off. Some people want, you know, everybody's got a different opinion on it. We were able to do in six months, as, as the U.S. Special Forces, the fifth group guys and the third group guys, were able to accomplish in six months what the Soviets couldn't do in a decade with a hundred after they ran a hundred divisions through Afghanistan. Then we were able to 
create a coalition that within, I believe it was four years, create their own constitution and their own government. It took us, it took the United States 11 years just to write the Declaration of Independence. I stole a little line from the movie, The Green Berets with John Wayne on that one, but it's absolutely the truth. So how fast do we need to be able to accomplish this in order for people to say that we were successful? We've got a government in Afghanistan that for the most part is not perfect, but represents itself. It's not perfect. Neither is our system. But you've got to have, when you talk about policy, you've got to have leaders and leadership that understand warfare, understand business, understand people and the human dynamic, and can in a meaningful way, be able to explain the successes that we're able to have without trying to make it into an unreasonable timeline. Now, when you talk about leadership, I'll tell people in no uncertain terms that the war in Afghanistan, I, can't, I won't speak about Iraq because I've never stepped foot in Iraq. But the war in Afghanistan took a step towards the abyss when Barack Hussein Obama took over as president. That's just the bottom line. That is facts. That is, you call it what you want to. And I don't normally, especially when I was on active duty, I would never talk about politics because I am always going to support my commander in chief no matter what, because that's what, you know, unity of effort is what makes us the greatest military in the world because it's a volunteer army. But there's no denying that when you have somebody who doesn't listen to their ground commanders and makes decisions based upon what they think and not what the experts think, that's a recipe for failure and disaster. And that's exactly what we got on whatever it was, January 19th or 20th in 2008. And it never recovered. And I know that the current situation in Iraq and Syria, you know, regardless of what anybody thinks politically, you know, pulling out, you know, after I, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I know right before the U.S. pulled out in Iraq, the violence was down dramatically, uh, dramatically, and you know, it took years of uh, fighting, years of you know, loss of American life, and years of you know, getting the the local population of Iraq to reject this, these insurgencies, these organizations that were there to cause as much anarchy and chaos as they could and pulling out really you know set it up for what's happening now and um 
You oh, know. without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, there's there's no doubt in anybody who has a military mind that the the forced withdrawal of U.S. forces in Iraq led to the state that they are in right now. And anybody who wants to deny that, I think, is full of crap. Uh, maybe some, you know, some analyst on some media who has never even stepped foot in the country, and the only thing they know about an insurgency or counterinsurgency is what they read in a book. But I got to catch myself because I get a little bit heated. Uh, I, you know, I know a lot of guys. We lost guys from the unit in, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan. I lost 14 friends, close friends, um, specifically in Afghanistan. And it is very troubling when you feel like the work that you're doing is for nothing because somebody is going to politically undermine you or question you. Um, that cannot be the place that you find yourself in as a soldier or as a commander or a senior non-commissioned officer when you are sent to fight against groups that do not have any rules. Um, I believe it was two days ago, three days ago, the, um, the special forces team sergeant who was discharged for striking a, uh, an ANP commander after, um, physically abusing and raping a, a woman and uh, her child in Afghanistan is now being uh, allowed to come back on active duty. Yeah. The, the amounts of soldiers that were discharged or charged with crimes while trying to fight an insurgency is it really makes you want to reassess your profession when you have people that are out there doing the very best they can do with the resources that they have available. And then somebody wants to politically come home or, or somebody back home wants to say, well, you know, because an insurgent dropped his weapon and you know, you saw that he had a ammunition vest on and you engaged him, you know, you have to go to jail for that. You lose your career for that. I mean, that is just absolutely absurd. And it shows a an incompetence that cannot be accepted by the presidency of the United States. One thing that I will tell you in working with third world, fifth world, no matter what it is, whether it's Muslims or whether it's just a an ancient tribe, is that people 
outside of the Western world, they do not respect you unless they fear you. And in those early years, we rightfully earned that fear because we said what we meant and we did what we said. That's the way the rest of the world operates outside of Europe and the United States. Anybody who doesn't understand that when they deploy U.S. forces should not be the commander in chief. And absolutely nobody should be the commander in chief who will not respond with every asset and capability when there are Americans requesting assistance, military assistance, when they're being overrun or attacked. Yeah. Um, I I don't remember what year it was. Um, do, do you remember what year it was when after Obama was elected that there was a troop surge? I think it was in, maybe it was in southern Afghanistan. Uh, maybe it was. I okay. believe that came about in. I believe in 2009. Okay. Um, I'm not sure of the exact figures and I don't want to get into, um, I don't want to put you in a bad position where somebody wants to, uh, some bean counter wants to argue over numbers. What I know is that what was requested by General McChrystal and the commanders on the ground was not what was authorized by the White House. Hmm. Interesting. I believe it was about 20, 15 to 20,000 troops less than what they requested. That's interesting. Um, there was a, I forget the name of it, but there was an HBO documentary that was uh, based around this surge. And I believe it was in southern Afghanistan. There was a Marine... A company that was pushing, they had this big offensive and they were pushing through, uh, certain areas and, you know, they were fighting, uh, in villages and, you know, from house to house. And there's a Hellman River Valley. Um, I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt you, but that was, Hellman. Uh, there, there's a whole litany of villages through the Hellman River Valley down through what was called the Fish Hook to uh, Marja Sangin, yeah. where the troops, the, the Marines who asked for resources and assistance didn't get what they needed. So let me help some of your listeners and bloggers understand how this works and what this means. So, it takes five to six support troops that are requested for every combat troop that's on the ground. So if you request 10,000 troops, only 2,000 of those, to eight, say 15 to 1,800 of those are actually combat troops, trigger pullers who are going to go out there and put a bullet between somebody's eyes. That's what people don't, that's the correlation that I think is huge. That's really missed 
amongst a lot of the American people and is intentionally not stated by the Pentagon or the White House is that when somebody requests a surge, when they ask for 50,000 troops, they're essentially asking for, you know, 5,000 combat troops and everybody that it takes to, or excuse me, 10,000 combat troops and everybody that it takes to support them. And that's not what you get. And then when you, you know, when Obama or Valerie Jarrett or whoever the advisors are to the president, when they change those numbers, it makes you wonder what the hell are they basing those changes on? Right. What experience do they have to even, they have the authority but they don't have the experience to make those changes based upon what the ground commander requests. That's like somebody saying, well, I think your car would run better off diesel, even though it's a gas powered car. Yep. If you don't know anything about vehicles and you don't know anything about motors, don't make any damn recommendations. Right, just listen to the guy who's, you know, who who knows what he's doing. And and that kind of goes back to what you were saying before about how, you know, it took, to you, you saw that great leadership when the general invited you into his office and wanted to pick your brain about certain things. And I think a lot of a lot of the issues that arise from you know, the current political situation would have not even happened had that kind of temperament uh, been involved, you know? Yeah, well, we need to go back to electing presidents who have military experience. Yeah. They need to have business experience. They need to have integrity. They need to be trustworthy. Um, and they need to be held accountable. And if they are held accountable, but nobody does anything, then they shouldn't be authorized or allowed to make those decisions. Yeah. And, and, and back to the, the rules of engagement, uh, switch up that you were talking about in that documentary where the Marines were pushing in through Southern Afghanistan, there was a part where they were in like a walled compound, like fighting, you know, shooting at guys who were in, you know, a compound of, I'm not sure how far away, but, and then there were still some civilians in in some of these areas. And what these guys would do is they'll shoot at them for a few minutes or, you know, however long it was, and then throw down their rifles and just walk, you know, walk out of the, the battle zone with, you know, a group of women and children. And the Marines know that those guys were just shooting at them, but because of the, the rules of engagement, they weren't allowed to, to do anything about it, and um, and and I think for for people who are listening, for people who you know f- follow military profiles or who are interested in these kind of subjects, I think watch, watching that will really show you how that hinders Americans who are on the ground fighting. 
Oh, we get, I mean, I could, I could go on for hours about issues with the rules of engagement because we had documented video of insurgents that would occupy a compound. And for, for listeners who don't know, a compound is like a house with mud walls all the way around it. They would, we would engage the enemy. They would go into a compound, force the women and children into the center of the compound so that the ISR aircraft, the, the predator aircraft or the drones, the, uh, U.S. and coalition aircraft could see them so that we wouldn't engage them. Or we had documented cases where, um, I believe it was in 2009, the insurgents would huddle civilians together, throw grenades into the civilians, call the local governor of the province or the district say the Americans had just bombed or attacked some civilians and they did it with the intention of shutting down U.S. military operations because they knew that there would be a massive investigation because of the political pressure to prevent civilian casualties. There has to be a more feasible and digestible understanding of civilian casualties when you're talking about fighting an insurgency. In Afghanistan, one of the reasons that we worked so hard to support the local nationals and the tribes that we worked with was because they knew what the insurgency were doing and they could fight them in ways that we could not. But when they tried to make known to the international media what the insurgency were doing and to try to get them to hold these groups accountable for what they did, nobody wanted to do anything about it. Nobody wanted to put pressure on um, Al-Qaeda or the Taliban or Haqqani or Hig or the Pakistani Taliban or the Afghan Taliban because the U.S. was too easy of a target. It was too easy to say, oh, you know, some special forces killed uh, some local civilians without giving an understanding of what the situation was was on the ground or is typically on the ground or talking about how brutal these insurgencies are. These people live by the way of the gun. If you have a gun, you have power. If you don't have a gun, you don't have power. And these people, they're not even people. They're, they're not even human. These insurgents will go in. If you look at the mass casualties, people being burned alive, people being blown up alive. How much do you hear about that on the national media? You don't because it doesn't raise an eyebrow and it doesn't get any ratings. There has to be a moral constitution to our media to support our troops amongst our populace 
without it being a political issue for the president to be able to brag about how he is supporting the Afghan government by persecuting soldiers who are trying to fight insurgents that are not abiding by any rules. If they're not going to abide by any rules, then just kill them all. Stop dicking around. But they won't allow us to do that. Now, of course, we're not going to be able to go into a village and say, okay, everybody who's a who's a bad guy, raise your hand, and then you shoot them. It doesn't work that way. Right. But people have this ridiculous ideology that that's the way it works, and these are not the Germans or the Japanese or the Viet Cong or the NVA or the North Koreans. These people don't operate that way. That's a convent, that, and that goes back to understanding the nesting of the mindset of fighting an unconventional war versus fighting a conventional war. Yeah, and you know, I, I think you're absolutely on the money when you say that the media should have a should be held to a standard where they are held accountable where they have to report context and they have to because you know, one thing that really annoys me and and this is usually like through social media. You know, on social media, I have people who are cons- more conservative leaning or more liberal leaning. So I kind of get to see like, you know, both sides of the coin, or at least on the social media. And and one thing that really annoys me is um, seeing people who are, and and there's nothing wrong with being highly critical or critical of the actions. Uh, when it pertains to U.S. foreign policy, but it, to me, it seems like sometimes the the people who have the most to say are the least informed. And, and what I mean by that is like, um, you know, people will, will say things like, "Oh, you know, the U.S. is over there killing farmers and you know, killing women and children," and, and, and you know, that sort of like rhetoric. But it's like, do you really understand what's going on, and do you really understand who it is that we're fighting against, and? Like as, as an example, I know before uh, the United States went into Afghanistan, when the Taliban uh, took control over most of the country, like at the halftime of soccer games, they would have mass executions and force everybody to watch it. I mean, what what kind of uh, government does that to its own people? You know, and um, and another example. Uh, I know you're familiar with the movie American Sniper, which was about uh, Chris Kyle and, and uh, you know, that a, a few deployments that the SEAL, SEAL Team 3 had to Ramadi in Iraq. And on a previous episode, I've had uh, Kevin Lace on, and Kevin was a, a former sniper with the, uh, SEAL Team 3 who was there with Chris Kyle, and he advised on the movie. And there was a big controversy over them referring to the people that were fighting in Iraq as savages. And people completely took it out of context and it's like, oh, you know, they're, they're calling Iraqi savages and and it became kind of a, a shit show. But it's like, number one, they didn't say that. And number two, the people they were fighting are savages. But the media doesn't seem to give like the full picture. And now people are starting to see some of this savagery 
by the the propaganda that's ran by ISIS in Syria and things like that. So I think, in a way, you know, the the advancement of ISIS on social media and their propaganda is helping them recruit, but it's also helping people understand the kind of evil that we're fighting against. You know, we've got a we've got a lot of sayings that we like to repeat. Um, some of them are funny and some of them are meant to be serious. When you talk about the media twisting information in order to create controversy, because that's what gets ratings. Nobody's uh, in today's society is interested in common things that are, or simple things. They want something that is um, controversial. That's what gets people's attention. That's what seems to drive the narrative for uh, not only social media, but the media in general. When you, there's a lot of names that you can't, you know, I wouldn't want to put out on um, any form of media that we call some of these people that we have to deal with in, in the different insurgencies. When you take a term as simple as calling somebody a savage, I don't think it's lost on the media or to the interviewer or the reporter who's making that story I don't think it's lost on them at all that they know exactly what's being said. They are twisting the information to try to make something different out of it. And the saying that we like to use is those who stir the shit shit pot should have to lick the spoon. The, the fact that when you see what some of these insurgents, due to other human beings, it's so appalling that you have to give a, a name or a title to it because I don't know, maybe it's just a, um, maybe it's just a way for you to be able to psychologically separate them from the rest of the human race. Uh, the fact is that if you look up the definition of the term savage, what these people are doing is inhumane and is correct. They are doing savage things to other human beings uh, who don't deserve it. And To be very honest, I think simply calling somebody a name to to those of us who are, I don't know, who, who are part of the protective culture of our society, it's embarrassing and disgraceful to know that somebody can be so irate and get their feelings hurt so simply over name calling. It was, you know, part of 
common propaganda in the U.S. to make fun of the Nazis and the Japanese during World War II. One of the one of the things that I have uh, at home was one of my my granddad and one of my great uncles was in the Marine Corps during World War II, and I've got a little placard, and they used to issue the Marines who were part of the island hopping campaign what was called a Jap killing card. And if you tried to issue, you know, but it was a motivational thing for the soldiers who were getting ready to storm those beaches and fighting in those jungles. And to hear how people want to take and place a, a label on the men and women who are trying their very best to protect this country is almost as, you know, ridiculous as hearing people talk about, you know, prisoners in Guantanamo being, you know, given civil rights or giving, you know, giving someone who's not a citizen of this country constitutional rights. It's just the absurdity of it has a tendency, society, I would say in the past 20 years, has done everything it can do to socialize the military. The military was always designed to be a separate entity with a higher moral standard of being able to delineate right from wrong and black from white. We've lost that ability, and so much of that is now progressing into the military to the point, you know, one of the things I talked about in my book is, you know, when you capture an enemy combatant, everything becomes, you know, in, in today's, conflicts when you're in the military everything is about a label or a tag or a a name that you call so in the book i used to talk about how how it used to infuriate us because we were forced to change you know hundreds of reports because we couldn't say we took somebody prisoner being utilizing the term prisoner was too much of a negative connotation, so we had to call them a puck or personnel under confinement. That's crazy. The story that you're talking about is really a just a very small snapshot of the socialization of the the military and the army. So instead of making society have tougher standards which give you the moral high ground we've essentially the administration has done its best to water down even the simplest of things like our true mission is to close with and destroy the enemy that means you get close enough to somebody that you can physically kill them whether it's by you know, an airstrike or artillery or 
with, you know, engaging directly with your weapon or getting close enough so you can stick a bayonet in somebody's skull. It's, it's all about the basic doctrinal fundamentals of what that organization is responsible for doing. And now you can't even articulate if you're in uniform, what you're doing with all, without having some sort of doctrinal thesis in English. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy because, you know, now, like I, I just saw an article was posted earlier. Um, I think it was by the army times or one of those big military websites that post like, news and articles relating to all things military. And the 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 title of it was um, the Army instructors at, at basic training have admitted that they're going easier on new recruits. And, you know, in, in many ways, the military has influenced a lot of civilian life in ways that people don't even realize in terms that they use or... Um, you know, like, uh, like you see how police ha- have the, I-, I forget the name of it, but you know, if there's like a high speed chase or something and they want to, you know, pop people's tires, they'll lay down that strip with the nails on it or, you know, whatever they call it. That came from, you know, special operations units operating, um, in Eastern Europe, uh, you know, after, I think it was in Bosnia or something like that. And, and then of course, then that, becomes popular in movies and and so there's so many things that people don't even realize that came from the military and and like you said it was it's designed to have that higher moral standard but now in like the kind of the the changing of our society it seems that that change in my opinion in a negative way seeping into the military and um you know when people talk about uh and you know like you said the media will kind of misrepresent uh, certain things about, you know, U.S. actions like civilian casualties and all these things. And it's like, it's almost like people don't understand. And and obviously, if you've never been to war, you won't fully understand it. But you can understand that war is, you know, like the total um, and, and utter like your goal is to just crush your enemy and that's what war has always been. So now like there's never been a time in history where there were really rules for war, you know? And, and in, in Afghanistan and, and Iraq and, and other places that U S forces are fighting, they've gone to tremendous uh, effort and measures to reduce civilian casualties as, as much as possible. And it still doesn't change the view that some people have in the world or in the country of the U.S. military, and it's just kind of mind-boggling to me. Oh, yeah. I mean, my brain's flooded with so many ideas and responses. (laughs) It causes me to – I have to be careful – to not always say the first thing that pops <laughs> into my head. People who think that it goes back to the example that I gave earlier. 
if you're inside the circle looking out and you're part of the military inside the circle and you understand the challenges and the responsibilities and the repercussions of working in a military, protecting the nation and all that that encompasses, it drives you out of your mind to, to have to listen to people talk about wars if they know anything about it. And the only thing that they can really relate it to is a sports event. You know, they think that it's something like a football game where two teams take the field and there's a certain amount of rules and it's all based upon talent and equipment and willpower. And it's going to start and end, you know, when the scheduling for um, the game is supposed to start and it's supposed to end when the game ends. And then, you know, their team wins and everybody goes home and everybody's happy. It's just so absurd to hear what people think war is like and what it's about. And they they don't understand when when somebody says, you know, you have got to if you're not willing to commit everything, then you've already lost. That means that people who are talking about combat don't know what they're talking about. And there's not a set of, there are a set of guidelines, but, when you're when you're fighting an enemy people are going to do what it takes to win and i don't know when 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 there is not that full commitment to provide everything that is needed and to do everything that needs to be done in order to successfully accomplish that mission then you don't you don't even start you don't even begin um, and that's part of the problem with our political system is that, you know, you almost have to be able to get a war accomplished during a presidential term, because if not, you don't, there are absolutely no guarantees of how that is going to be executed when the next president comes in and takes over. Right. And then when you get, you know, a commander in chief who doesn't, he's got less than six months political experience and he and his advisors are not fully as fully committed as his predecessor when it comes to winning and protecting the people. Those of us who do this and did this for a living know that the only way that that mindset is going to change is when, unfortunately, this fight is going to be brought to our doorstep. And we will remember the days when there weren't IEDs at 
marathons or bombings at airports or hijacking of airplanes. Uh, these things are starting to regularly become commonplace. And the way that you prevent that is you have to be able to win at any cost. Because it's not worth burying one service member because of any reason. If you're going to send them over there, you take the cuffs off of them, you feed them well, you give them the best equipment, and you tell them to get done as quickly as possible so you can bring them home. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I know the audience, both the episodes that you were on previously um, had a lot of plays and listens and downloads because I know people really appreciate hearing from you. You know, I just want to thank you once again for uh, taking out the time to come on the podcast and really give people a side of, you know, an opinion and a, and kind of tell them how it is in a way that there aren't many places where people can get that kind of information, um, you know, online or, or anywhere else on television or something like that. So for those who do not know, Major Bradley wrote a book called The Lions of Kandahar. It's actually one of my favorite books from the Afghanistan war. It's a very good book. And Major, where can people pick up that book if they want to get their hands on it? Lines of Kandahar can be found in uh, any media format, MP3 player, uh, iPod, eBooks, uh, hard copy, soft copy, and you can find it at any, should be available at any major bookstore in the United States, um, online, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, Books a Million. You you can essentially find it in any format. If people will just uh, Google search or type in, uh, do an internet search for uh, Lions of Kandahar, they should be able to find um, find any location where they can pick up the format of their choice. All right, awesome. So I'll I'll put some links on the podcast notes up on my website uh, when the when the podcast goes live. So if anybody wants to check it out, you can also check it out on there at uh, globalrecon.net slash podcast. Um, you know, Major, uh, once again, thank you for coming on and sharing some insight, and uh, thank you for your service. Well, please tell your uh, listeners, thank you for being a country worth fighting for. I think it was John Wayne that said, America's the greatest country in the world, warts and all. And we're not a perfect system, and there will never be a perfect nation, a perfect country, a perfect system. But uh, in terms of human history, I believe that the United States is the greatest country that was ever been formed. And even the ability for you and I to do this interview and say what we think 
is unheard of in most of the nations in the world. And I just appreciate uh, you giving me the opportunity to, to have a voice. No, no problem at all. Uh, thank you, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you. So far, each episode that I've had the major on for the podcast has been pretty successful in terms of downloads and uh, plays all across the platforms that the podcast is syndicated on. And I think the reason for that is, one, you don't hear from individuals of that caliber too often. And then on top of that, you don't hear from them in a setting where it's not so controlled, like, you know, doing an interview on a major news network or something like that. And, and, you know, we just have a conversation where we're, we're going back and forth and then you can really kind of get some insight into the topics that we're discussing from an individual who has a very unique perspective as it's something that he's done for 20 years, you know? So, um, it's always interesting and it's always thought provoking. And I, I hope that people can listen to this and kind of get a better, better picture of what um, it takes to defeat this kind of ideology that we're facing, because it's not just, you know, those guys are over there and let's go there and, you know, kill everybody and, and it's over. It's it's an ideology, it's an idea, and you can't defeat an idea just by shooting people. You know, you have to bring understanding and awareness and, you know, that is something that, you know, there are units within the U.S. military, within the uh, defense apparatus who specialize in, in those type of operations and, you know, it's 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 something that I would like to continue to discuss and get people thinking about because obviously, you know, after 15 years of fighting, what we've done hasn't worked. And there were examples early on of the successes of uh, Operational Detachment Alphas, which is the 12-man Special Forces A-Team where it was a very light footprint, uh, wasn't a lot of guys, and they were able to successfully counter these groups by winning over the local population. And and not like winning them over, like bribing them or anything like that, like genuinely building relationships and genuinely um, forming bonds and, and uh, things like that. So, you know, it, it, this is a topic that I definitely plan on doing some more podcast episodes on, and I definitely would like to get some subject matter experts on to discuss this uh, in further detail. Uh, so with that being said, now I will close out this episode. Uh, my website is globalrecon.net. Uh, you can check out the Instagram. I now have three accounts. One is IG Recon. The second one is Global Recon underscore Inc. The third and most newest account is Black Ops Matter. Um, you can check me out on Facebook at FB Recon, on Twitter at IG Recon. And I encourage 
all the listeners of the show, if you enjoy what you've heard today, to please download, subscribe, like, and share on social media. Share with your friends and family and uh, help us continue to grow the podcast. Thank you. Korea has not been the only battleground since the end of the Second World War. Men have fought and died in Malaya, in Greece, in the Philippines, in Algeria, and Cuba, and Cyprus, and almost continuously on the Indo-Chinese Peninsula. No nuclear weapons have been fired. No massive nuclear retaliation has been considered appropriate. This is another type of warfare. New in its intensity, ancient in its origin, war by guerrillas, subversives, insurgents, assassins, war by ambush instead of by combat, by infiltration instead of aggression, seeking victory by eroding and exhausting the enemy instead of engaging him. It is a form of warfare uniquely adapted to what has been strangely called wars of liberation. To undermine the effort of new and poor countries to maintain the freedom that they have finally achieved. It preys on economic unrest and ethnic conflict. It requires in those situations where we must counter it. And these are the kinds of challenges that will be before us in the next decade if freedom is to be saved, a whole new kind of strategy, a wholly different kind of force, and therefore a new and wholly different kind of military training.